I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The idea that we need the oil and gas industry to be part of the solution is nuts. That's like saying that we need the, the whale blubber industry to be part of electricity. Welcome back to Wicked Problems. I'm Richard Delavan. What if the climate technology we need most is better stories? Redemption arcs are brilliant, and individuals get redemption arcs. Every single person who are currently working in very destructive industries... Every one of those individuals can have redemption art. The industries don't. This earned dystopia, this we did bad things and we deserve a bad end, fits a slot in our heads. We need something that is going to fit another story slot in our head. Being an optimist, which I absolutely am, doesn't mean being soft. <laughs> it's, there really are really Massive, significant problems, and many of those problems are because of deep, vested interests. I don't think any of us can look around the world as it is today and say that there aren't any villains. So we got some reactions to our recent chat with Dr. Tadzio Mueller, the longtime climate activist and who now argues for something called just collapsed or prepping together, as the Swedes call it, to create the kind of social networks that will enable people to help each other in the face of a climate collapse Mueller thinks is irreversible. And he thinks both climate tech and the kind of activism he used to fight for are both just two tunes we nervously whistle past the graveyard. A lot of them, not all of the reactions, boil down to why are you platforming a doomer, a fatalist, someone who's given up? Well, for one thing, I don't agree with the idea that Tazio Miller has given up. I think that he's earned his point of view and whatever you think of it, where we ended up in agreeing that the conversation about adaptation something we spoke about with Ulrich Seitz, is long overdue, I think was quite interesting. And, you know, I think maybe people who work in the solution space need to hear whether or not what they're saying is convincing for the people who feel most acutely the stress of thinking about where the climate is headed. But I also knew that this conversation would be coming out soon after. I wanted to make sure we had a palate cleanser in between. So if you haven't listened to our chat with Stephen Mearsman, co-founder of Zenobi Energy, you really should. Stephen is someone today's guest would call a solutionist. Solidaire Townsend is the founder of the sustainability consultancy Futera, and also last year published The Solutionists, How Business Can Fix the Future, and has spent much of the last 25 years thinking, speaking, and writing about how the kind of stories we tell each other have a profound impact on how we make sense of the world, our place in it, and how we choose to deal with climate. Well, you don't have to have listened to our conversation with Tazio Miller or with Stephen for this episode to work. It can't hurt. But this chat stands on its own. As 2024 shapes up to be one long series of tests of our endurance and patience, Solitaire's ruthless pragmatism about how to see story as potentially our most effective climate solution is neither optimistic or pessimistic. It just feels pretty convincing as a way of understanding how every decision whether to take a job in oil and gas, which way to vote this year, how to face the future, 
is shaped by the stories playing in our own minds. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this. And if you're hearing this with ads and would prefer an ad-free version, you can sign up at news.wickedproblems.uk and also get our newsletter. And if you feel able, the price of a single London pub pint can help us out with a subscription. As anybody doing this will tell you, there's nothing like the feeling of finding out that what we're doing with Wicked Problems is good enough that you come back, if you're able, to buy us around. And now, here's Solitaire Townsend. Solitaire Townsend, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Wicked Problems. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. How's your new year been so far? Uh, it's actually been really good. I, at the end of last year, so much happened, launched a book, Solutions House in New York, went to COP, big decisions about, about what's next. And then I spent the holidays with my family and there's nothing like trying to explain what you do to an eight-year-old to make you really <laughs> focus down on what matters. So I've come into 2024, which is such a pivotal year for all of us, mm. raring to go. And you came out of the traps. You had a piece in Forbes with your five prophecies for this year, um, which I was fascinated to read. And as per the Solitaire Townsend way, very optimistic, very much you know <laughs> looking at how we can move from managerial solutions on sustainability to entrepreneurial. But I suppose that for a lot of people, it's quite a dark backdrop we're looking into for 2024, where a lot of the gains that we have made over the last few years... There's half the population of the planet is living in countries that are going to have an election of one kind or another this year. Mm -hmm. And for in many of those places, it seems like climate action and the solutions behind it uh, are going to in some ways be put to electoral tests. So tell us a little bit about your future casting for 2024, how these big decisions that are coming up fit into that. So 2024, as you say, is an absolute pivotal year and it's been coming down the line for a while. So I'm really uh, excited and pleased by the number of folks around the world who are really gripping this in a local way within their own countries. Now, I prophesy that it will be a very mixed picture. There will be hopefully some big wins for the climate, particularly in countries where the incumbent is anti-action on this or is beginning to dial down some of the concerns. I'm sitting here in the UK. There's an example of that right here. In some other places, we're going to get some upsets. We know that nationalism is on the rise and, and there's actually some very big crossovers between that and climate concern. But we, we will see some upsets as well. It's not all going, to go, all going to go our way. I'm really interested to see. Remember, I've been in this long enough that the idea of climate change being an electoral issue at all feels to me like a really big step forward. 15, 20, 25 years ago, the idea that actually climate issues would be on the ballot in one way or another, for good or ill, was inconceivable. So I think the very fact that these are a disgust issue, that they're a vote winner or a vote loser, that it's become so central to our public discourse, to the public square, is in itself a really good thing. Well, I think it's something that, again, you, you've been at this for since 2001, isn't that right, when you founded Futera? Futera in 2001, but I did my master's in sustainability in the late 90s. Right. Um, which, I mean, and again, I, I think that your reputation precedes you as having stuck with it for all this time and had this vision about having a consultancy that could really drive this forward and the kinds of conversations that have led you to be able to produce. When we met in Chatham House, you didn't have this with you, so I'm going to, I'm going to do your favor for you here, the book to go. But <laughs> So the book's been out for a year now, a little bit thereabouts, I think, the first quarter of last year. Anyway. It's a bit less. It came out in April, April. of 2023. Okay. So we're still technically within our first year. And it seems like it's a pulling together across this 20 plus years that you've been at this and working in this space. The different conversations with the yeah, effort from Paul Pullman to Bill Gates to absolute pantheon of, of names that uh, will be familiar to our, our climate tech leaning audience. So you also mentioned in your Forbes piece that since the book has come out, that it has helped spark more conversations. So I mean, tell us a little bit about that experience. You, you, you got the book out. First of all, how, how difficult was that? So it's <laughs> difficult to get final, the final draft of something out, I find. Oh, yeah. So as you said, I've 
The big piece of work for the book was the interviews. So interviewing folks like Bill Gates and Paul Pullman and CEOs of IKEA and various others and a whole lot of amazing on-the-ground changemakers and entrepreneurs at Who Gives a Crap and Oatly and others, all the way through to in indigenous changemakers in the Amazon rainforest. And so that was many years' work, actually, getting those interviews. And what I was asking them wasn't the things which are normally asked. Mm. I wasn't asking them, what's your theory of change? Or what are the five things you think really matters in climate tech? You, they, you can read that already a thousand times over. I was asking them about themselves, mm. about their life experiences, about, in some cases, their childhoods, <laughs> about, about what makes them tick about their failures, about how they survive and how they keep going. And so getting those interviews, we're basically calling in about 20 years of favours to be able to get those interviews. And in many ways, the hardest part of the book was deciding what to put in and what to leave out. Mm. And actually, I'm going to do a whole series of articles on some of the full interviews with these people, because in some cases, I was only able to quote a short, a short insight from them in the book. And so actually that was a big decision, what to leave out of the book. And then to decide how honest to be myself about what I've struggled with and some of my own challenges over these decades of doing this was a was a big decision. But I feel I love this stuff. I love to be able to tell these stories. The book could have been three times longer. So this is absolutely the very tip of the ice the best of the best insights that I could put in there. And I had a big fight with my publisher over the title. So I wanted to use this term solutionist mm. and because I felt like there wasn't a word for what I do. Mm. I'm, am I a change maker? Am I a sustainability entrepreneur? Am I an ESG person? It never really actually had a collective noun for those of us who work in this field. And solutionist felt really right to me that my job is to bring solutions to problems. It's, there's an optimism to solutionist. There's a positivity to solutionist. But inherent within the word is the problem because you wouldn't need to be a solutionist if there weren't problems to mm. solve. So that's why I loved it. But my publisher didn't. They wanted to call it sort of how to be an effective change maker in sustainable business or something. Right. I can't remember what the title was. And so that was a big old fight. And I'm so, so, so pleased that they decided to invest in it. And actually, wonderfully, a couple of the people that I interviewed, like Kate Grant and others, came to my rescue and said they thought it was a wonderful term and they were prepared to call themselves a solutionist. And before the book was published, I went online mm. onto LinkedIn and there was about 12 or 13 people who were using that term about themselves in their bio or even in their job description. And now there's about 20 pages of people who have adopted the term solutionist Excellent. to define what it is, what they do. Well, I think that when I the first saw you in person, although we didn't speak at the time, was at the Business Greens Climate Tech event where... I think uh, Alistair Campbell came out and basically said, chief solutionist. Yeah, I wish I had that title. So yeah, I can see how that's it's caught on, which is wonderful for you. So congratulations. Cute. And it's it, I, anybody who wants to call themselves a solutionist, it's not a term that I have any ownership over at all. And put a TM after it then. Okay, <laughs> good stuff. And I look, I think even the color scheme gives you the idea of this resolute, it's very catch me if you can vibe in terms of the color scheme in terms of this pro futurist early 60s kind of vibe to it which i love and it, it's something that i suppose getting the interviews done and talking to these various people that you again had calling in all these favors from two decades plus of experience who were the people that who were the, the interviewee that surprised you the most in terms of different from what you expected Oh, that's such a brilliant question. Some of them are just surprised to actually be able to get the interview at all, bluntly. Some of them, again, the fact that the fact that somebody like Bill Gates would be prepared to even discuss stuff about himself and what he'd done. I think probably the one that surprised me the most was the interview with Jesper, the CEO of IKEA. Mm. So IKEA is a very large organisation. I've worked a lot in Sweden. Swedish people tend to be very warm when you're friends with them. But when you don't know them, they tend to be quite careful in terms of what they share about them themselves. And yet he and I ended up having this two-hour chat, hmm. basically about life, the universe and everything he shared insights from his childhood. He shared insights from his marriage. We talked about challenges we'd both faced in, in terms of how people see sustainability, about some of the mistakes he'd made. And to have a CEO talk so openly about his failures, about his fears, mm. 
about how he feels about where we are and how he feels about other CEOs. I love the fact that he broke ranks in that sort of very formal, quite careful, lawyer looking over the shoulder type way. And so one of the things that he spoke to me about was how he had said in an interview recently that he was more afraid of green hushing than he was of greenwashing. Right. And that this was something that he'd been quoted on and got quite badly attacked for. But we had quite a conversation about that because what he explained was he wasn't trying to dismiss greenwashing. Greenwashing is, is absolutely terrible. Mm. And thankfully, with the new EU rules and the CMA in the UK and the FTC in the US, there are now increasing rules around greenwash. What he was trying to say was, as businesses, if we don't speak up mm. on these issues, if we don't advocate, if we don't say that we want action, then we are in real danger of, of losing this mm. fight. And I very much agreed with him on that point. And I was really pleased that he was essentially saying what we do really matters. Of course it does. But what we say really has an impact. And we're talking politics here. Like what companies say affects political outcomes. And that matters. And I think it's something that many business leaders are uncomfortable with if they're not already in that headspace. And I think that you're so the, the title of the book is The Solutionist. The subtitle is How Businesses Can Fix the Future. And I think to your point, unless you're a Jesper or a Bill Gates, where you're already in the arena of this stuff, and the, a lot of the CEOs and founders that I speak to on this podcast, many of them are slightly allergic to the idea that they should muck, it up, muck in when it comes to political debates. But in terms of people who have found particularly the populist right in politics across different geographies around the world, have now found that one way they can make get traction is by in trying to intimidate businesses to, to your point, engage in green hushing, to stop talking about some of these things. Even if they're in the climate solutions business themselves, they find it often the way that best to keep their head down. So what's your, how do you buck people up when they've had a first encounter with someone trying to shut them down in your work as you're trying to advise different teams? Yeah. So it all depends on on what matters. So take, for example, Larry Fink and Blackrock. Regulatory structure, particularly in terms of taxes and market instruments, is absolutely central to whether Blackrock makes the kind of money that it makes. Clearly having the right wing protect some of the allowances mm. that allow for financial instruments and the ar arcane and complex way in which BlackRock makes billions really matters. And so it was easy to intimidate. I think he is in people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. He is in a glass house mm. made of a certain amount of unequitable structures, tax breaks, allowances, which means that if he shakes the tree a little bit, particularly when, when there's a political aspect to it, they can make him come begging on knee to say, sorry, sir, I shouldn't have said anything about purpose. Please let me keep my unfair rights. And, and what have you. But, but so that is that for companies where they are exposed significantly to a certain set of political privileges, they are very dependent upon who holds those mm. purse strings at any point. And it can be the other way around. It can be, you know, uh, um, company, companies desperately trumpeting what they're doing on climate change or over-trumpeting what they're doing on climate change because the people who, who own the purse strings. Most companies aren't in that situation. So uh, people are often using what happened to BlackRock as an as an excuse for why they're green hushing. And I'm like, you're not in that situation. Your business is not entirely dependent upon very significant political support for what you do. Mm. It just isn't. Particularly if you're in manufacturing, if you're in green tech, like literally if any other sector except for very complex financial services, you're really not as exposed. And so don't see what happened there as being something which is going to negatively affect you. Actually, in many cases, basically, in that case, there could have been rules changed explicitly for BlackRock. Mm. Like BlackRock themselves, as a company, can be targeted because they have uniquely for themselves 
particularly get out of jail free cards. Very few companies have those privileges, which means very few companies have those risks. So if you don't have significant financial privileges in terms of how your business operates, which are unique to you rather than to your industry, chances are you're fine. (laughs) You might get some pushback. You might get some grumpy politicians. You're also going to get some very happy politicians. But unless you have those unique privileges, you're not going to have them taken away from you. And so that's one of the things which I think we need to be really careful of in the green hushing. Also, you've got to think about what the costs are of silence. Mm. So the costs to your staff, your costs to your upcoming consumer groups, your costs to the um, activists and some of the campaigning organisations. Those are very significant costs. Now, they're not costs that are going to be felt as explosively as the cost of being made to sort of give evidence to a government hearing. But they are ones which actually might be deeper Mm. and more costly over time. So let's dig in a little bit about the core of what you have built and what you guys do, which is the storytelling. And I promised you we'd try to nerd out on this because that's what our audience does like. We do get into the weeds a little bit. So I loved the, again, very short, very readable document, again, which I think is woven into the solutionists, which is these different frames. So... Take us maybe, if you would, through the innovations that you've had on this. So everyone knows the climate kind of doomist. Uh, I love the Frankenstein kind of framing of this. Essentially, it's the earned dystopia. It's the idea that I was, I'm going to be speaking to someone in the activist space who's now an embracer of the just collapse movement, which is basically post-degrowth. It's essentially that we've earned this. We're, we deserve it. We're all going to have to just live in huts and therefore, and we should just get on with it as quickly as possible. So let's do that. But you then, the responses to that have been, so to take us through this, The Hunger Games, Iron Man, and Eat, Pray, Love. So what are those three different kind of story frameworks? So one of the things to first know is that storytelling is an art. It's a passion. It's a, it's something which comes very deep from what, in what human beings are. But it is also a science. And you can approach storytelling with the same kind of rigor of thought as you'd approach any other tool of change. It doesn't, you still have, you can't just do the science, but you still have to do the art, but you still have to do the passion, the human truth, the creativity of storytelling. But you should start from a position of actually interrogating what it is you're trying to do. So in, in Stories to Save the World, as you said, we try to explain it in a very fun way, but there's a great deal more behind it. That this earned dystopia, this we did bad things and we deserve a bad end, fits a slot in our heads. We already have a narrative slot for that particular story. It's a very familiar one. It goes back to periods of medieval morality plays. It's, it's so woven through through our story history. So we need something that is going to fit another story slot in our head. It's a little bit like how proteins work in terms of, in terms of medicine, that you actually have to, you have to fit something else into that slot. So the three main stories which we currently have as solutions to the dystopia is Iron Man, which is technosavia, that somebody like Bill Gates or somebody else is going to just invent the slightly sci-fi thing that will solve everything. And that's a very persuasive and significant story, particularly in the West Coast of the US Mm -hmm. and in tech circles and in investors. This idea that if we can just get that techno fix, everything will be solved. Now, that's a good story. I'm actually a big fan of that. We do need a significant amount more technology and we do need a significant amount more innovation and investment within technology but not to the exclusion of all else. And, of course, one of the joys of the Iron Man story is, of course, Iron Man himself learnt that it took collaboration, it took societal support, it took friendship and many other things in order to solve the issues that he was facing. And he couldn't just snap his fingers and solve it all with the technology. So that's the Iron Man. The Eat, Pray, Love story is sort of very much this, we've just got to go back to a different way of living. This is, again, very old story. These stories around the fact that there's this utopic way of living, that if we all just sort of went back to this simple birds chirping, rivers running way of living, Mm. that everything would be okay. And again, very old story, has been around for a very long time, essentially another Eden's type way of type way of being and that does appeal to a significant number of people downsizing white adjustment going back to the land etc 
but not to everybody by a long way. Mm. And to a number of people, it can feel like a threat. It can feel like a sacrifice. It can feel like a punishment for the way that they're currently living. So they're going to fight against it and people can exploit that fear that people have of the fact that good things are going to be taken away from them. And then the third one is basically youth mutiny. They're hungry games. I think it's no surprise that a lot of our climate movement, our youth climate movement, is led by young women, all of whom read The Hunger Games, which was explicitly written as a climate parody, as a climate metaphor. And we've got an army of Katnisses now out there. And again, wonderful, brilliant, has had a very significant effect. The very fact that oil companies have said that Greta is their biggest threat is shows the massive power of that. The issue with it is that there is a sort of generational dislike built into that, the sense that we actually have to smash the old to make room for the new, which can be, again, really problematic and possibly dangerous. And I see it building and I see all this discontent amongst young people and a discontent not just at the systems, a discontent not just at the financial organisation, discontent not just at the infrastructure, but a discontent at older generations. So it's always easier to blame people than it is to blame politics. And so, again, real worries with that. And those three stories are pretty much all we've got in terms of solutions to the dystopia story. Uh, they're not the only stories that are available to us, though. There are lots of other story slots. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In our brain um, that would really be able to onboard significant more parts of the population to what needs doing around this. And it's one of the things which I'm really eager to get out there and do is to tell these new stories that will help enable much wider groups of people across the global north and also the global south to see climate action as a personal benefit and enjoyment to them. And I think that that's something that's come across in all the, the different forums that I've heard you speak at is that your recognition, which I think is unfortunately a little bit rare um, amongst people who might style themselves, not necessarily. I did mention that there might be a dog malfunction. There it goes. Um <laughs> There we go. I don't think a dog is ever a malfunction. No, I, I, Very welcome they, interruption. They, they run the house, so it's I can't really pretend that <laughs> otherwise, but it just makes me feel better. But in terms of your recognition, which I think is sadly lacking from a lot of folks who work in the space, about the need to get people on board with a what's in it for them aspect to the narrative. I think it's something where you and Alistair Campbell were in violent agreement, certainly at the Business Green Conference last autumn. So in terms of some of these other story slots and where if these fit in, so maybe can you pick one from the five that are in the story stories to save, to save the world and take us through how that works in the context of, of bringing people on board in a, in a better or different way? Just maybe just one. We don't have time maybe to do all five. Absolutely. And I think Modern Family is probably the one that, that I'd like to take on board because, and I don't necessarily mean that we need a modern family show, an equivalent of that for climate change, but that normalisation of the benefits and real benefits and, nor and sometimes messy benefits of living in a more sustainable world. 
So a sustainable lifestyle in a more sustainable world, because we know we need both. We know that we do need personal action. Of course, we need personal action. We, almost all the carbon in the world eventually comes down to us as individuals. But we need the infrastructure and the powerful people to enable that. We can't do it on our own. So we need people power and powerful people working together on this. So being able to tell stories where living more sustainably in a sustainable world feels normal feels just what is just what we all do nowadays so building it into and it's one of the things which I'm doing so I'm working with soap opera writers mm. and I'm working with filmmakers romantic comedy writers not documentary uh, writers in terms of actually showing what a sustainable world would look like not a utopia mm-hmm. not where everything's perfect that those are boring but the fact that you're going to have a normal life you're going to have loves and crises and funny issues and that you're going to um, live a, a full and rounded life in a sustain in a sustainable life in a more sustainable world mm. that's one of the things which we absolutely need to do more of and of course for those of us who've been in this movement for a long time we quite like being alternative mm. we quite like not being normal it's sort of a personality trait if you will and so that's why we've been bad at that we've been bad at showing a sustainable lifestyle as normal because we don't want a normal life and we forget that the vast majority of people absolutely do and so that's why working with storytellers Mm. who are so good at being able to honor and connect with the intricacies and sometimes the absurdities of everyday life has been so great for me because being able to plug that in Mm. and then to say no that's too weird and that's too out there no nobody wants that and challenging me Mm. to come up with ways to show a sustainable life that feels normal it's just been brilliant well i'd I'd love to if you could give us an example of of something that again you don't have to tell us which show you or movie you were consulting with but i suppose for me trying to write a scene where you're trying to plug in these types of scenarios generally jeopardy seems to come into play right apple has done an amazing a bit of product placement and weaving through all of the apple tv stuff that there's always an opportunity to use an apple product at some point and for a long time thrillers had a, a drama had a problem in general where the mobile phone wasn't a thing for such a long time and the, the inability to reach another character in a timely way was a key part of, of moving a plot forward of that disconnect of creating that tension so I guess range anxiety is the only thing that jumps to mind <laughs> with EVs. But well, can you give us an example of something that you've, uh, without having to you know, portray any confidences? Not, not at all. So one of the big things that happens a lot in TV programs and in movies is people have conversations in cars. Mm. So you see that a lot. It's a great way to have a conversation between two characters, which is a bit more interesting mm. and a little bit more intense of them having that conversation in a car. It works and it also is cheap <laughs> <laughs> in terms in, in terms of the actual production yeah. of it, it's not much of a chance. It's essentially an interior shot. And so one of the things which we're working on is going, how can we show more of these conversations in public transport? Mm. And of course, one of the benefits of doing it in public transport rather than the car is you still, public transport is still a really cheap shot. It's still essentially an interior. You have to have a couple of other folks around. But what you can do is, of course, you can get that jeopardy. You can have the jeopardy of being overheard. Mm. You can have the challenge of your characters having to work out how to have this conversation in a way that isn't embarrassing. You can even have a little bit of reaction from somebody. You know, you could have two younger characters having a conversation about their lifestyle or about their love or about a one night stand that they had. And you can have an older character sitting behind them sort of looking about outrage and the character responses um, really matter Mm. in terms of filmmaking. So that's it's a very simple change but to have um high aspiration characters who have money characters who are well dressed characters who are beautiful in public transport rather than in cars is a great thing and also there are benefits to it for the storytellers as well because they get told off a lot for characters driving being distracted for characters being on their phones when they're in cars, for characters not looking at the rows when they're in cars. And of course, the benefit of showing two characters having a conversation on public transport is one of them don't have to be driving. That's definitely, yeah, I can see that. Certainly the road transport safety people would be quite happy with that as, a, as an outcome. And I suppose talking about appealing characters and talking about how we, we style and have the, the kind of, what's the, what's the correct way of saying this these days? Approachable? That's not quite right. Presentable. That's the word I was struggling for there talent in terms of how we portray characters and get people to want to engage with that that content 
But the other thing, of course, that makes people engage more than anything else is sometimes the baddie, the villain. So it's something that, I mean, people aren't fully aware of your canon, as it were. In addition to the work that you've done in helping to create this real sense of positivity and optimism about the future, you're quite ferocious, really, when it comes to certain topics and identifying, calling out some people who might be, well, for want of a better word, the villains of the piece. So what's mm -hmm. your view about the role of villains in the kind of world building and story kind of narrative framework process? What, how do you think about that? It's not, not something we often Absolutely. talk about in public because it's, well, we just don't really want to do that, really, in terms of how we're going to consult with a client. But help me out. Oh, God, totally. So being an optimist, which I absolutely am, doesn't mean being soft. <laughs> it's, there really are really massive, significant problems. And many of those problems are because of deep vested interests and people who will sacrifice others for the sake of themselves or for the sake of normality. I don't think any of us can look around the world as it is today and say that there aren't any villains. Now, a couple of things. In good storytelling, your villain always has to feel that they're right. If you're actually just having somebody who revels in evil is a really boring villain in terms of storytelling. So one of the things which we need to acknowledge is that almost all of those from the oil company execs to the certain politicians, to the investors, to the advertising industry that supports overconsumption, all those people think that they're doing a good thing and they're, in the mor that they're morally right. So just shouting at them and saying they're, that they're the villain doesn't always help. I did a post recently on LinkedIn, which was a letter to those working in the oil industry. Mm. So she's going, God, it must really suck for you at the moment. Like your kids probably don't like what you do. You might have to make a little joke if you meet somebody at a dinner party about kind of, yeah. Like you're always on edge. You're mm. always worried. You're always expecting attack and expecting challenge. So why are you still doing it? Often people say, oh, well, if I leave, somebody else will just get the job. And going, yeah, but that person might be worse at their job than you are. You're brilliant at what you do. So actually, don't think about it overall. Just think about yourself and think about how much nicer and happier you'll be if your kids were proud of what you did. Mm. And that would be a really nicer job to have. And so redemption arcs are brilliant and individuals get redemption arcs. Mm -hmm. Every single person who are currently working in very destructive industries, every one of those individuals can have redemption arc. The industries don't. So I don't, industries, they can die off. Industries have died off throughout the entire history of humanity. Right. I was looking into the history of Liverpool, which is a port here in the UK, and how the port of Liverpool was one of the brightest, lightest, well-lit parts of the world for a very long period of time mm. because it was fueled by whale oil. So all of the wonder, it was a marvel. People would travel in order to walk down a lit street in mm. the evening because of the whale oil. And quite literally, when people started to challenge this and started to say that it, it was a, wasn't good use of the resources, it smelt, there were problems with it, people said, well, the lights are going to go out. And the whale oil industry disappeared. Hundreds of thousands of people's li livelihoods depended on it and disappeared. And they all got other jobs in the new industries which were upcoming. So I'm big fan of the fact that the current villains can have redemption arcs towards being part of the solution. In fact, that would be brilliant. Um, born Against Sustainability people, bring it on. But those industries, they're just not going to exist. And I love the idea of kids in the future learning about the oil and gas industry in the same way that they now learn about the whale oil, whale blubber industry of old. Well, I hopefully it's hopefully it's that benign of a story, but uh, time will tell. But I think you've already touched on something else I was going to ask about, which is how I suppose a lot of the times, and you were at COP, right? At COP28, you spent some time there and you've been at others before. And there is, particularly right now, we're going to go from one COP helmed by an oil executive to another COP helmed by, in Baku, by a former oil executive, for all intents and purposes, still working in the industry. And we're told constantly that we must find ways for the fossil fuel industry to be part of the solution. We shouldn't antagonize them quite so much because they need to be part of it. So I guess, do we simply reject that out of hand? What do we say to somebody who's in, who's partnering up to get access to capital or markets at the moment, if they're working in solutions, if they're partnering with the oil industry? Yeah. The individuals working in the oil industry absolutely can be part of the solution. Many of them are extremely smart, well-educated with degrees in engineering and elsewhere. We need them as part of the solution. The idea that we need the oil and gas industry 
to be part of the solution is nuts. That's like saying that we need the the whale blubber industry to be part of electricity. And for start, the physics is quite different. Actually, the physics of electricity is very different to the physics of, of liquid fuel. So there isn't as many transferable skills, etc., as we need. And so, I, again, it's one of those stories, it's one of those myths that has been repeated enough that now people think that it's the case. And we sort of, but how? How are they going to be part of the solution? Like, what's in it for them? Mm. Like, it, so, for example, Austed. And I speak to um, uh, Madsen Hipper, the CEO of Orsted and the Solutionists, and he gives a great story of how Orsted used to be Dong, um, Danish um, oil and national, na- natural gas, and transitioned from being an oil and gas company to being a renewables company, which is what it is now. Mm. Brilliant. That transition happened over the last 20 years. That's when the transition needed to happen. We needed the transition over the last 20 years. Some companies made that transition brilliant welcome to the new world the companies that didn't they missed the boat i suppose that's that's fair enough yeah and i love the description the conversations that you've had mads nipper it's a fascinating company story but uh, as you say sometimes the opportunity is there and then gone so a, tar- a particular target for your ire i went back and watched your ted talk from 2021 <laughs> and have heard you speak about this and naming names even of particular agencies and what they've been doing so you referred to that, and again, two years ago as the X industry. So everything consultancy from PR to advertising to the big four in terms of the, the management consultancies as having a lot of their business being enabled by their work with some of the highest paying companies in the world, which happen to be fossil fuel industry players. And you have really, you become quite animated when I've seen you speak about this. So it's clearly very deeply held belief about the moral compromises that people have put themselves in continuing to do this work. Do you think that things have come to the point where I, until last June, I was working for an agency, which I will not name on this podcast. And one before that was part of a big group that have a big part of their revenues is doing this. And the, until really recently, it was possible, at least in terms of their internal communications to talk to their employees about the idea that, well, we're committed to the principles of Paris. We'll only work with clients that are saying they're committed to those principles. And now you've got clients that have basically said, yeah, we're not really going to stick with that plan. So bye. Are we going to see a big sort in the X industry between companies, agencies that are willing to continue doing that work and the employees are basically are willing to take that deal and those that are not? Or how do you see that unfolding? So first of all, this is the this industry is full of some of the smartest, brightest, best educated, most creative, most innovative people in the world. Like, you know, some of the most creative people in the world. Very few people grow up wanting to be an ad exec, wanting to be a copywriter or a, or a graphic designer. They want to be an artist. They want to be a writer or they want to be a visual artist. They're deeply passionate, inventive people. And then there's only so many people who can make a living out of writing books and doing art. And so they end up moving into the industry. Ideators. Again, where else? What other industry can you get paid to come up with ideas in? These industries, the people within them are the people we actually most need at the forefront of this change. This is the industry which has the kind of visionary, the kind of communicate skills... Brilliant, brilliant. And at the moment, significant amounts of that is being poured into the very things that all of us are most afraid of in the world. So really challenging. And of course, it all comes down to money. This is also in an industry where the whole, oh, but what about jobs thing? It's like, this is an industry of knowledge workers. We're not talking about factory workers who are on less than $15 a day, which is one of the things which gets thrown at some of these transition conversations. I'm not overly worried about the income of a bunch of people who work in advertising. So what I think is going to happen is we will have this bifurcating of the industry. Just like we've had a whole set of companies just before COP and coming out of COP as well, hundreds of very large businesses saying that they want to see an end to fossil fuels. Very The, the, the later is too late letter, really important stuff. You're going to start seeing that within the industry as well. And there'll be some enforcement of that. So the new rules around the race to zero will require some of these companies to report on whether they work with oil and gas companies or not. And of course, one of the big things which is going to affect that is talent. Because these industries, 
they don't have anything. We have a few offices. They've got a few expensive computers, but they don't have factories. They don't have fields. They don't make anything. It's all brains. And, of course, those brains can choose where they want to spend their talent. And an ad industry that cannot recruit the best, most breakthrough, most innovative talent is done for. And so I think you're going to begin to see, particularly as some of those Gen Zs and then those alphas mm. come through the marketplace, they will choose where they want to spend their talent. And what always astonishes me is that there's an industry that's always talking about this big crisis of talent, a war for talent. And they think that's a different conversation than the climate conversation. It's like, dudes, you're going to have to make some choices. And then again, there will be winners and there will be lo- losers. Mm. There will be industry players who move out of serving oil and gas, make a very big deal about that, soak up all of the purpose work, we get some of the biggest businesses in the world to be able to work with them. And then there'll be those who basically say are very honest about working for the worst of the worst. I'm not sure if you've seen the wonderful spoof agency I was ask. online. I was going to ask. Really, really brilliant work. Yeah. But, but what that will very quickly move from being a spoof mm. to there being agencies who essentially say we're in it for the money that's what we're here to do whilst these industries are legal we will work with them and actually we did interview ben from utopia bureau was one of the co-creators of that uh in a previous episode and it's we'll put that in the show notes yeah i think that work is absolutely astounding do you think it's effective do you think it's obviously very highly targeted at mccann's right so mccann's repitching for that work with the fossil fuel industry do you think that's effective do you think that's going to deter Obviously, no one's going to quit necessarily like this, but do you think that will have inspired people to be updating their LinkedIn profiles quietly at McCann's and start looking for other gigs? Oh, yes. So first of all, it's really good creative. So really good creative, really clever ideas, very smart thinking, captures the attention of this industry. So absolutely um, props to those who came up with it because good creative really affects that kind of change it's funny it's cutting it's saturistic so yes i've got absolutely no idea no no doubt that you've got a whole lot of people who are beginning to update their linkedins who are beginning to think about where they could work elsewhere because it's this it's the same issue as it is for the people who actually work in the oil and gas industry it's all essentially comes down to you it doesn't come down to your business it doesn't come down to the ceos it doesn't come down to the system it comes down to you if you are if you've worked hard and if you've been lucky enough to be able to be a knowledge worker where essentially your skills and your brain matters more than your brawn then you get choices you actually get choices. You get many more choices than the vast majority of human beings out there. And you get to decide what legacy you want to leave in the world. You get to have an impact on the world, which, again, most people throughout most of history haven't been able to have an impact on the world. You do. It's amazing. It's fantastic. How wonderful and exciting is that? And I think what you're going to find is a lot of people deciding that, yeah, maybe other people will take the job. Yeah, I'm sure it's fine. No, I'm never going to say anything negative about my former employer. No, I absolutely love them. And I think, I'm just going to, I'm just going to find somewhere else to work. And I, I don't know if you've read um, Stephen Markley's The Deluge. It was one of the books that Ben Cook from The Times recommended. It's this absolute doorstopper of a novel. It's a thousand pages. Came out about a little bit before your, your book, The Solutionists, uh, came out. But it is this absolutely spectacular, different narratives from four or five different main characters, including somebody in the ad industry who is working for a coalition, essentially the American Petroleum Institute or a stand-in for them. And uh, yeah, who has her own kind of Damascene conversion of moving across to something else to work on the, as it were, on the other side. So fantastic. Well, if you haven't read that, I would check it. I would recommend to check it out. But on the subject of recommendations, last question, you've been very generous with your time, Solitaire. I've kept you way over what I asked for. So... In terms of things that have influenced you, other than the brilliant The Solutionist, which if you haven't yet, you can buy it all good bookshops or booksellers online and get it. You should. But what else have, has influenced you? Could be a book, it could be an art installation, could be a film, could be anything that you would recommend people listening to this podcast or watching this to have for themselves. So I've got two categories. So in one category, I've got um, a couple of books. So Intersectional um, Environmentalist by uh, Leah Thomas and the upcoming um, uh, What If We Get It Right by Dr. Anna Elizabeth Johnson, both of which are very optimistic, very positive, but also make the 
deep connection between societal issues, racism, exclusion, justice and climate change. And those are really important, particularly those of us who have been working in this sector for a really long time, where, let's be blunt, we weren't good at doing that and actually putting those issues together. So very strongly recommend those books. Leah Thomas, The Intersectional Environmentalist, and Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson's upcoming book, What If We Get It Right? On the other side, I really recommend people enjoy, lean into and expand their imaginations. So that might be reading, for example, Psalm for the Wild Bit built by Becky Chambers. Really brilliant book, which actually sets out a sustainable utopia mm. and talks about how difficult it is living and having a sense of purpose in a sustainable utopia. It might be Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Books, but you know, it might be watching sci-fi. In many ways, quite a lot of what I'm trying to do in my life is make Star Trek happen. It's like, I want to live in that future. I want to live in the future where basically being a human is about going and exploring and trying to find out about the world. So letting your imagination open, because a great deal of optimism comes from being able to imagine things being different than it is. In the book, I go into a fixed mindset versus an adaptable mindset. And fixed mindsets, which assume that the way things are right now are the ways they always have to be, is a real problem in terms of when we're trying to make a difference in the world. It's also not true because the world has been very different all through history. And so actually get out there, read some fiction, particularly read some science fiction and some speculative fiction, or watch the movies about the way in which the world could be good, bad, mediocre, near future, far future, to just give your brain that expansiveness and let some new ideas in so that we can, if we want a better future, we've got to be able to imagine one. And if you can't imagine it for yourself, go and read somebody else's. That's an absolutely brilliant place to leave it. Solitaire Townsend, author of The Solutionist, How Businesses Can Fix the Future, still available, all good bookshops and online. Thank you so much. We've been so generous with your time. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you so very much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Wicked Problems. And if you like this conversation, please share it and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps people find the show. You can subscribe to our newsletter at news.wickedproblems.uk, where you can also find more episodes with Richard Delvin and Claire Brady and all our show notes. And consider becoming a paid subscriber to help support our work. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. For now, thanks for listening. 